what you felt when you came out this morning. We felt cold. <laughs> well, we're from the tropics. We've been 21 years out now out in Asia. We went out, of course, in our early teens. <laughs> or soon afterwards. Um, and it feels very cold up here, and it got very cold this morning. And Anne-Marie's actually been complaining of the cold for the last two weeks, never mind this morning. Well, this morning we're going to go to Greece. So I hope that feels nice and warm to Athens. And we're going to go there with the Apostle Paul and to study what happened and what he did when he went to Greece, to Athens. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 and starting from verse 16. This is page 1113 in the church Bibles under the heading there in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, 
We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So here we have Paul in Athens, the great city of Athens, a city-state, a city that sort of sat complete in itself as its own state. And we're privileged to live in Singapore, which is a modern-day city-state. Not very big, not very huge in terms of population, about half the size of, of Scotland in population and not much bigger than Edinburgh and its surroundings in terms of its size. But a city-state, that was Athens. It had been a world centre for art, for culture, for education. Uh, perhaps the most uh, famous monument of Athens and of all of Greece is the Parthenon. Built as a temple to Athena, the goddess of Athens, Athens, Athena, elevated enough to be seen from miles around. One part composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the national glory and to the worship of the gods. Praised as perhaps the finest achievement of Greek architecture and one of the world's great cultural monuments. Of course, in Edinburgh we have our own version of it. And I, I couldn't resist putting this up when it came up. In fact, when I gave my sermon title to Harry Robertson, he said, oh yes, we're the Athens of the North. And there's the Edinburgh version of the Parthenon. I did a bit of poking around on the internet and I realised that some people think it was meant to be like that. Some people think Edinburgh ran out of money and that's why it's like that. Uh, on website, one website it said that Edinburgh ran out of money and asked Glasgow to pay the difference. <laughs> and Glasgow refused. On another website it said Edinburgh ran out of money and Glasgow offered to pay the difference. And Edinburgh refused. <laughs> well, I'll leave you to go back and research that. Um, but we do have that connection between Edinburgh and Athens. Athens had been a glorious city and it had been in many ways the centre of that part of the world. It was a little bit in decline. Its peak had been four or five centuries earlier. But it was still the philosophical centre and the religious centre. It was the place where, where Plato had had his academy and Aristotle his lyceum, where Socrates had taught. But it was still the place where you went if you wanted to talk about philosophy or wanted to talk about religion. And this is where Paul finds himself. Now the interesting thing is that Paul never actually planned to go to Athens. It wasn't part of his missionary strategy. He had got there not quite on accident but because of the trouble that had been stirred up elsewhere in Thessalonica and in Berea and because of the trouble it agitated the crowds and stirred them up, we learn in verse 13, and the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast. And those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left him with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him there as soon as possible. He hadn't actually gone there with a, a missionary purpose. He'd gone there to escape the trouble that he had created elsewhere. 
And I suspect that after the believers had brought him there and checked him into a nice hotel, they said, you know, just relax. You know, you've had a tough time. Just, just take a week off. Sit by the pool. Read your manuscripts. Write a few letters. Whatever, you know, the kind of things that Paul was supposed to do. But Paul would not sit still. I don't think any place was safe when, when Paul was there. Um, but, but it made me think about what, what, what do I do when I have an unexpected stopover? When you suddenly get a pause, you suddenly end up somewhere perhaps you hadn't planned to be and there isn't an agenda and a long list of things that you have to do. I remember one time when I was visiting Hong Kong and we'd finished all our business and I had a half day free and it was a beautiful sunny day and I had a brand new digital camera, my first digital camera. So you can guess how I spent that morning wandering around Hong Kong, which is a very picturesque city in many ways, taking lots and lots of pictures with my digital camera, enjoying the sights. What did Paul do? Was Paul a tourist? Well, he didn't just stay home in his hotel. He went round and he looked at the city. But I get the sense that he didn't just go out to see the city and admire the Parthenon and the other architectural wonders that he had no doubt heard about. But he went around the city trying to see the city as God saw the city. Asking the Lord, what are your purposes for this city? What are you doing in this city? Why have you unexpectedly brought me here when I was planning to go somewhere else? And he tried to see the city as God sees the city. Reminded me of another visit to Hong Kong I'd made with some other colleagues and we had an evening free. Um, And we went up to the peak where you can see over Hong Kong and it's a beautiful view of the lights and there's all kinds of architecture that the banks have experimented with, competing with each other. But we didn't just look at the lights. We looked at the buildings, we looked at the apartment blocks and thought about how many people lived in those apartment blocks. What would be needed to reach them? How many churches? At one point we were counting the windows to work out how many people lived in one of these huge blocks and and how many churches you would need, you know, one per block or one per two blocks. And then, then we prayed together about the city and God's work in the city and what purposes he might have for the city of Hong Kong. At that point, it was related to Britain. A couple of years later, it became part of China again. How do we look at the world? With the media today, the the world is there. Whenever you switch on your television, the news of the world is coming in. Do we just let that wash over us? Do we watch these programs about the geography and the culture of the world and think, how fascinating... Or do we ask the Lord to show us, what what are you doing in these different parts of the world? How would you have us pray for these different places? One of the countries that we're particularly concerned about at the moment is North Korea. And North Korea is often in the news. And nearly always in the news for bad reasons. It's about its nuclear weapons or a terrible accident or some new revelation about how successfully they're 
counterfeiting US currency or the diplomats are smuggling drugs or it's, it's nearly always bad. Or the refugees who are getting over the border into China or the famine. Several years ago, somewhere perhaps between one and three million people died of starvation in North Korea. And the situation is far from good. But when you hear that kind of news, do you just go, oh, how awful. Or do you think, how can I pray? What is God saying? What is God doing in this situation? Because I think that's how Paul responded in his visit to this place. What do we do when we go on vacation? Sometimes these days, um, some Christians that we know aren't going on vacation to enjoy the swimming pools and the sights, but to come and pray and to take that time, to take a week, just walking around a strange country, praying for it. Praying on site with insight is how uh, some of our, our members talk about it. But coming to pray rather than just to relax and enjoy. Well, what did Paul see when he sought to see this city through God's eyes? We read that he saw idols. What struck him was not the beauty, the brilliance, the eloquence, but the idols. The city was full of idols. And, and, and the fear is, is not just lots and lots of idols, which there certainly were, but of a city weighed down under the weight of all these idols, smothered, groaning, dominated by them. And how did Paul feel about that? He felt distressed. The Greek word is the word that we get paroxysm from, when, when, when you convulse, when your whole body uncontrollably bends up and down. And Paul had, had a kind of mental fit, a mixture of anger and grief at what he saw in this city because he was jealous for the glory of God. Are we jealous for the glory of God? Do we have a sense that, that God should be honoured because he is the creator God and it comes out later in his lecture at the Oropagus. God, God made everything. And it's all his and we're all his. And yet the glory is going to somebody else and that's not right. They have a sense in Thailand of the glory due to their king. And just, I think it was in the news just last week, a foreigner was being jailed because he'd been defacing some of these pictures of the king. You saw uh, earlier, Anne-Marie put one up. And he'd got drunk and he'd gone around defacing them. And that is unacceptable in Thailand to treat a picture of a king in that way. We had an incident a few years ago where, where a preacher trying to, to show that money was important put a note on the ground and stood on it. He hadn't taken into account that the king's image was on that note. He had to leave Thailand fairly quickly. And he was not able to have any more ministry. But they had a sense of the honour due to their king. Uh, some months ago, uh, Hu Jintao, the Chinese premier, visited America, the USA. And there was a lot of diplomatic back and forth. Was this official visit? Was this a state visit? 
Would he get a 21-gun salute? Would he get a state dinner or just a state luncheon? You know, if he invites us to lunch or to dinner, we really don't mind. <laughs> but when it's a president of the United States, there's a, there's a very definite ranking about what happens. And, and the Chinese media were very concerned about how their premier was being received and the honour and glory given to him. Well, we're not concerned about protocol in that kind of way. But are we concerned that God is honoured? Henry Martin, the 19th century missionary to India and Persia, said, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he was always thus to be dishonoured. And it's interesting that um, when we look at the motivation for mission, there are perhaps three main reasons that are, that are looked to as motivations for mission. One is obedience to Christ. We've been given a commission. We call it the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. One is love for people. The love of God that God has placed in us. His love for his world and the people of his world. And Paul writes, Christ's love compels us. I can't not do this because of the love of Christ in me that's been planted in me. But the third is the glory of God. Because the only right thing is what we look forward to one day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have a mission statement in OMF. It's to glorify God by the urgent evangelization of East Asia's millions. And, and I find we have to continually battle to remind ourselves that it's not the urgent evangelization of East Asia's millions. It's to glorify God. And that is the purpose. And that must come first. And if we lose that, we've lost the whole point of it. It's the glory of God. Well, Paul's distress led to action. He was not just turned off. He didn't just go away thinking, this is a horrible, hateful city and I can't stand these idols. He did something about it. And I want us to look at that this morning. He did a number of things. The first thing I see that is he, he changed his whole approach to evangelism. And, and Athens seems to be a very significant turning point for the Apostle Paul. He had developed... Uh, a sort of standard pattern of operation in each of the places that he went. His normal pattern was to go to the synagogue. And we see this throughout the, uh, the last four chapters of Acts, starting at Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 5, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Acts 13, 14 and 15, in Sidian Antioch, on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue, and then the synagogue rulers invited them to share a message of encouragement. Uh, Acts 14, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number believed. The beginning of this chapter, 17, chapter verse 2, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue. But here in Athens, he changes that. 
And this is the first place where we find him preaching otherwise than in the synagogue. And he expands his, his ministry into the marketplace. In Athens it would be called the Agora. Uh, not just where they bought and sold vegetables and meat, but the whole place where they traded in things, but also traded in ideas and came together to discuss things. But Paul realises, I think, in Athens that this is very different to, to the cities where he's been in before, where perhaps the synagogue was a significant place with a significant number of people. But here in this city, with all these different religions, the Jews are just some tiny little group. And if he starts there, or if he limits himself to there, because he still did go to the synagogue, he's just not going to get to the people in this city. And he needs to expand. He needs to operate differently. And so he goes beyond what was the church, which was the synagogue for him as a Jew, the familiar. He goes, I'm sure, beyond his comfort zone, as was said earlier about somewhere, somebody. You know, the synagogue was where he had grown up. You know, he knew when he came in what would happen, when to stand up and when to sit down and when they would read the scriptures and, and, and when he would get the opportunity to come and share and he had just the kind, right kind of messages for that situation. I'm sure he felt uncomfortable down at the marketplace with all these different people and these Epicureans and Stoics. I wonder how much he knew about Epicureanism when he arrived. But I think he, he worked hard to to learn that and understand that. But he realized that this was where the people were. And identifying with the people was going to be so important if they were going to hear the good news. And he changes his style as well. His style had been that of a Jewish preacher. He went to the synagogue, he gave a message. Yes, it was a different message because it was a message about Jesus. But it was a message in the tradition that he had grown up with, in the style in the place. Now he had to learn to debate like the philosophers debated, to sit there like Socrates and, and ask questions and give answers and have much more back and forth. We see him a little bit later invited to the Areopagus, to this council and he needs to give a kind of philosophical lecture as the context in which to share the gospel. And it was exciting this week in Edinburgh to have this uh, debate on atheism and Christianity and to hear that that was packed out and they were having to turn people away. But that that style of presentation was catching an interest and communicating to people who wouldn't otherwise have been caught. And so he changes uh, his method and he changes his message. Perhaps that sounds a bit too radical. How can you change the message of the Gospel? But it's interesting, we have in Acts lots of occasions when Paul preached, but perhaps only two occasions where we get most of his sermon. One is his Acts 13, and here again in Acts 17. In Acts 13, I think we get the pattern of his preaching in a Jewish situation, where he starts from the Jewish Scriptures where the main message that he's trying to get across is that according to the scriptures, the Messiah had to die. Because they hadn't realised that. It was there, but they hadn't caught on to it. 
and then that Jesus is the Messiah. And he came to die, and you see the proof of that in his fulfillment of Scripture. And then he ends with a challenge to respond to Jesus. But here, in a very different context, he gives a very different message. He begins, he doesn't mention the Scriptures. What sort of preacher is that? He starts with philosophers. He starts by quoting Epimenides. You're all familiar, I'm sure, with the poetry of Epimenides, aren't you? No. <laughs> I better go back to um, <laughs> the best laid man, ways of mice and men going after Glee, and you feel a bit more at home, don't you? Um, but Epimenides of his poem Critica. Now, I didn't know any of this either until I looked it up in the commentary. But, but it meant something to those people. It, it, it engaged with them. Whereas mentioning old Jewish scriptures wouldn't have engaged with them. He has to establish that God is the creator, the father of all, the one we seek. That Jesus is the appointed judge and the proof is the resurrection. And then end with the challenge of Jesus. And we find that this is such a, a, a reality in the different situations that we are in. In one way, we are there to share the same gospel message. But in another way, it looks like a very different gospel message in different situations. Not because we're preaching a different gospel, but because there is so much to the gospel message and, and some of it is so much more meaningful to some people than to others. I was talking to somebody uh, just last week here in the chapel, a student from overseas, and she was sharing with me the difficulty of talking to her parents about becoming Christians. And one of the barriers for them becoming Christians was fear of what would happen to them if they stopped the ancestor worship that was part of their life. What would the spirits do to them? Was it safe to transfer their allegiance to Jesus. Now, that's probably not a typical problem of your average Scot coming to faith. But it's a very real issue for somebody like that. And for them, it's very important to hear that Jesus is stronger than the spirits. And all those stories where the spirit says one thing and Jesus says, shut up or stop or go out, and they just have to do it, and the average Scot can't quite relate to them, I think, often. They're very meaningful in these kind of contexts because they demonstrate that Jesus is more powerful than the spirits. And if you choose to follow Jesus, you will be safe because he can look after you. It's probably different things that the, the average Scot worries about, whether they can be safe and whether God can take care of them. And we can give them reassurance from the scripture about those as well. But we found in many ways, we found when we were in the Philippines, the ways we were used to explaining the gospel, they weren't wrong, they just weren't relevant. They didn't answer the questions that Filipinos had and we had to find new ways and we had to invest in understanding them so that we could do that. And we see that in what Paul does here. He begins where they are with his message. He begins actually by sorting himself out. 
he's, he's, he's quite stirred up. But he doesn't let his feelings of anger and frustration and, and outrage at these idols make him rude. He remains very courteous and very appropriate and communicates very well. He treats their beliefs respectfully. We see that his beginning, he says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I think to the Athenians this was quite a compliment. Yes, we are, aren't we? We're quite pleased to be very religious. We're quite pleased to have all these different idols about. He engages their interest. He finds some common ground that he can somehow relate to them. This, this altar to the unknown God that he has come across. And nobody's quite sure what this, this altar to the unknown God was. Perhaps the most likely explanation, it was, a, it was a bit of an insurance policy. You know, you've got altars to all the gods that you do know about. But what if you've missed one and he's angry? Well, you better have an altar to the unknown God just to you know, cover your losses. Uh, insurance was an issue in those days and trying to be sure about things. Perhaps that's what it was. But Paul uses that as an opportunity to talk about the God who is not unknown, the God who he does know, who he can tell them about. And he quotes their philosophers, this Epimenides, when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's a very un-Jewish way to talk about God. Don't find many reflections of that in the Old Testament, but it's still true. And it so happened that one of their philosophers had said it and he could take it. We are his offspring. That was the Cilician poet Aratus. Again, that's one of those pieces of information you'll forget, as I do, <laughs> easily. But it meant something to them. And the good news is not going to communicate to people unless we take the time to understand them, unless we take the time to engage with them. And that's true overseas. And the reason why, if you join OMF, in most situations, we will make you spend two or three years just learning the language and learning the culture. And as well as that, trying to understand how people think, because they think very differently. But I think even here in Edinburgh, as it, this city becomes more multicultural, we will need to invest in understanding the people. They won't become like us. Paul said that the Christian mandate is we become like them, that we might win some. And then he teaches them the basic truths about God. That God is the creator of the universe the personal creator and personal Lord. And therefore it's absurd to worship idols. That God is the sustainer of life. And therefore it's absurd to think that he has to be sustained by temples and offerings. That God is the ruler of the nations. That he has determined the times and the boundaries. And he is in charge. Look beyond all these idols that he is the father of all. And he is the judge of the world. And he realizes that he needs to lay this foundation that they would understand who this God is 
if he can ever talk about Jesus. We had an interesting experience with one of the tribal situations we were working in in the Philippines. The tribal group had been quite responsive and quite a number of people had become Christians. There were a number of tribal churches and things were going on, but, but one way or another, the tribal Christians really didn't seem to understand the faith that they had come into. And, and eventually, and I think this was probably 10 or 15 years after starting, our missionaries decided, hang on, we really have to stop and go right back to the beginning and just start with Genesis and teach them that God is a creator, teach them about the fall, teach them about all those different things. And after about six months, we'll get back to teaching them about Jesus again. But if they don't understand those foundations, they don't understand a holy God. They don't understand a God who's who's planned what it's going to take to win a people to himself. They don't understand really why Jesus came and what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be clothed in the clothes of righteousness in our daily living as well as in the free gift of eternal life. We find in Japan when Japanese people come to the Lord, my colleagues there say it takes between seven and nine years before they really understand because their way of understanding is so different. It it just takes a lot of rethinking to understand the real nature of God and therefore the real nature of the faith. But then he goes on to face them with the truth of judgment. The idols are wrong and he's told them that quite plainly. He's told them that in a way God has overlooked them but he won't keep on overlooking them. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's just that God is merciful and he has delayed his judgment. But now he faces them with the truth of judgment. That it will be universal, that God will judge the world. That it will be righteous, he will judge the world with justice. That it will happen. The day has been set. You know the difference when when somebody talks about something vaguely happening and somebody says, on July the 17th, you think, oh, okay. (laughs) The day has been set. The judge has been appointed. And the proof that he has been appointed, that he has been given that role, is the resurrection. And at that, they all get a bit tumultuous and start disagreeing and some of them sneered and some of them said, we, we want to hear you again. And some of them responded. But the truth about Jesus often divides. Up until that point, he'd been giving a fascinating philosophical lecture to people who loved fascinating philosophical lectures and new ideas. But when they were presented with the facts about Jesus, they could no longer debate philosophy. They had to decide. And that's true for us here. And it's true for the people in our city. And it's true for the people in our world. They need to hear about Jesus, but then they need to decide about Jesus, to follow him or to disregard him. And that was the message that Paul took into this 
pluralistic environment. That is the message that we still have in our pluralistic world, in our increasingly pluralistic society here. How are we going to live? Do we feel this same sense of outrage that Paul felt for God's honour? As we look at our cities and communities, should we not be provoked to see that the glory of God is obscured by the idols of our cultures? I can talk to you about exotic places in East Asia, but it's also true here whether those idols are careers or cars or beautiful homes or other things that displace the place that Jesus should have. May even displace the place that Jesus should have for Christians, but displace entirely the place that Jesus never gets for those outside. And we should be saddened for them and outraged for God that he is not glorified. Are we ready to change ourselves? What we do with our time, how we spend our evenings, the methods that we use in sharing the gospel, the message that we take that's still faithful to the scriptures but discovering new truths that will mean so much more to these people. Are we respectful in our approach to those of other religions? And that seems to be true here of Paul. He challenged them, but he remained courteous but strong. And perhaps most of all, and most importantly, faithful to the facts of the gospel. Because there is no other name but Jesus by which people may be saved. And no other situation in which they can be left in safely but the hands of Jesus. And I think every time Paul preaches in Acts, that is the challenge that he leaves his hearers with. And that is the challenge that we're given to take out into our city and to take out into our world. How can we communicate that Jesus is the one in a way that people will listen, will understand, and some of them will hear and believe and follow. They'll be more like Dionysius and more like Damaris and many, many more beside. Let's pray.